Our scripture lesson for this evening is taken from first from the Old Testament and then from the New Testament. The Old Testament passage is Exodus 6, page 66 in the Pew Bible, page 66, Exodus 6, the first nine verses. Exodus, Exodus 6, beginning, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let you go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with a great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord." So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of the anguish of spirit and of cruel bondage. And then reading from the New Testament, from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 15. Romans eight, fifteen through 17 and verse 29. Romans 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him that we might also be glorified together. And then verse 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, it is our privilege to consider the word of God this evening as summarized by the Heidelberg Catechism. And so I invite you to turn to page 877. And Lord's Day 13, on uh, page 877, the two questions on the bottom of the second column. Lord's Day 13, question 33. Why is he called God's only begotten Son, when we also are God's children? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are adopted children of God, adopted by grace 
for the sake of Christ. Why do you call him our Lord? Because, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, he has delivered and purchased us body and soul from sin and from the tyranny of the devil to be his very own. Love to the Lord, today's uh, Lord's Day deals with two of our Savior's names. He's called Son, and he's called Lord. The first name, the word Son, reminds us that we also are God's children, children by adoption. And the second word, Lord, reminds us that we are God's possession, that he has redeemed us and therefore has purchased us and owns us. Now, the first idea, the idea of sonship, is rather comforting. Even the world likes to think of itself as being all God's children. We're all God's children. Isn't it wonderful that uh, all humanity is God's children? That's, that's a comforting thought. And the world that uh, has no right to think of themselves as God's children because they uh, have not been adopted into God's family through faith in Christ. They are his creation to be sure, but not part of the loving family until they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But... Uh, the church also gets great comfort from, from this idea that, that we are God's children. But the idea of lordship, it's, it's not so comforting. It's that idea that somebody has purchased us and owns us. Somebody is lord over us and we have to submit to him. Certainly, uh, we have progressed beyond such uh, ancient ideas of people being the property of someone. Uh, Can we throw off that idea? Well, no, we can't, because without lordship, there can be no sonship. If he doesn't redeem us from the power of sin and evil, if he doesn't rescue us from uh, our condition of death, then we'll never be adopted into the family of God. We need a Lord in order that we might be sons. And so we want to look into these two subjects this evening, sonship and lordship. Now, with regard to sonship, we take note of the fact that Jesus is called in Scripture the only begotten Son. In John chapter 1, it says, We beheld his glory Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Only begotten. What does that mean? Well, to understand what that means, it might be helpful to remember that Jesus isn't the only begotten, isn't the only, only begotten person. (laughs) There's one other person in the Bible who is described as only begotten. Not a divine person, to be sure, but nonetheless one who is described as only begotten, and that's Isaac. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says that uh, uh, Isaac was Abraham's only begotten son. Now, how can that be? Abraham had other children. He had a son before he had Isaac. He had Ishmael. And after Sarah died, Abraham married Keturah and had other sons whom he later sent off to the east. Uh, He had uh, 
several sons beside Isaac. How can Isaac be called the only begotten? Well, in that context, it's quite clear that only begotten means very special, (laughs) set apart from all the others, different from all the others. How was Isaac different? Well, he was different in two basic regards. He was different because he was the only son of Sarah, and, uh, but even more important, he was the heir of the covenant promises. God bestowed on Isaac the covenant promises. That doesn't mean that, that Abraham's other children couldn't be saved, but they would be saved through Isaac, just as uh, you, uh, Christ now is the, the bearer of the, 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 the heart of the covenant. He is the, the mediator and the one through whom we are saved. Well, in Abraham's day, uh, it was through Isaac. Uh, Isaac represented the Christ to his generation, and so by putting the faith in the promises given to Isaac, uh, people could be saved, including Ishmael, if he had done that, or uh, those sons who went off to the east could also be saved through the promises that were bestowed upon Isaac. So Isaac is unique. He's special. He's the heart and center of covenant life. He's the bearer of the covenant promises. And so it is that Jesus also is the unique Son of God. Uh, A long time ago, I preached to you a sermon on the uh, Luke chapter 15, what's called the parable of the prodigal son. And in that sermon, uh, I doubt you remember it, but maybe somebody might Uh, I said, God has two sons, or in the beginning, God had two sons. Uh, He had an eternal son, uh, the second person of the Trinity, but then in the beginning, he also had a created son. We can properly call Adam the son of God, because the last verse of Luke chapter 3 says, Adam, son of God. That's the end of the genealogy that starts with Jesus and works backwards to down uh, through the generations, uh, Enos, son of Seth, Seth, son of Adam, Adam, the son of God. Uh, Adam was God's son. And uh, so God has uh, sons also, uh, not natural sons, created sons, to be sure, created in his image, but not sharing in his divine nature. And so Jesus is the unique son of God. He's the only eternal son of God. Uh, We saw some of the uniqueness of of the Son as we considered John chapter 5 earlier today, where Jesus uh, makes himself equal to the Father. And we read uh, in the last verse of of our text this morning, John 5, uh, 23, that the Father has uh, entrusted the Son with all judgment so that everyone will honor the Son as they honor the Father. Honor the Son as they honor the Father. God has given these things to Jesus so that we'll give to Jesus the same honor that we give to the Father. Uh, Jesus is the unique Son of God, the the only divine Son of God. And uh, we uh, confess in in one of our confessions, Begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father. That's from the uh, the Nicene Creed. Uh, this is the eternal second person of the Trinity, and uh, 
He uh, is different from us in that we are the adopted children. Now, God the Father loves the Son so much that we, we shouldn't be surprised if we had read, we don't read, but if, if the Bible had said God loved His Son so much that He gave the world for His Son, that shouldn't surprise us. You know, God loves His Son more than anything. And uh, when you love something more than anything, you'll give up anything else for that person. But the amazing thing that we read in Scripture is not that God loved the Son so much that He gave up the world, but that He loved the world so much that He gave up His Son so that you and I might become sons and daughters of God. We read in Romans 8.29 that God predestined you to be conformed to the image of His Son that you might that he might be the firstborn among many brothers god gave up his son he gave him up to the cross he gave him up to death and to suffer the agonies of hell so that you and i could be adopted into the family of god god wants not just two sons he wants many sons many sons and daughters he wants a big family the son of god came into the world says in Hebrews 2 verse 20, 2 verse 10, to bring many sons to glory. And again, Romans 8, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Indeed, God has put his spirit in our hearts and assures us through faith that we are God's children along with Jesus Christ, co-heirs with Christ. You know, an adopted child has the same legal rights as the natural child, although they have different natures, different DNA. Christ has divine DNA. We have human DNA. We have different natures. But legally, we stand on a level playing field. We're on a par with him legally. We are co-heirs. What a glorious thing the Father has done, that he takes his only son, his only begotten son, and gives him up in sacrifice so that you and I can be rescued and adopted as God's children and heirs. As children of God, you have the, not only the right of inheritance, but as children of the king, you have access to the throne room. You remember the story of uh, Esther and Mordecai, how Mordecai said you have to go and plead with your husband, the king, on behalf of the Jews. And she says, no, no, I can't go in there. He hasn't asked me in for over a month. And if, if you go in uninvited, it's off with your head. Uh, she was afraid to, to go into the throne room of her husband, the king. Sometimes when you and I have done something wrong, of which we are ashamed, we are afraid, afraid to go to God. We, we picture him as a righteous judge. We picture him with thunderbolts in his hand ready to zap us because we, we failed. We failed again, again and again. We fail, and how dare we lift our eyes to heaven. But the author of the book of Hebrews says, no, 
Come with boldness to the throne of grace in time of need. He doesn't see your sin. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. You're clothed with that perfect righteousness in His sight. You are His beloved child. Yes, you need to say, I'm sorry, but know that He is eager and ready to receive that and to assure you again of His love. Imagine a king who has little children, little children who haven't learned the protocols of the kingdom, uh, don't know that uh, little that people aren't supposed to just run into the throne room, and, but they do it anyway. And what does a king do when he sees his beloved little child, uh, a little toddler running up to him? He opens his arms and welcomes him. Uh, he doesn't stand on ceremony with a little child that he loves. He allows that child greater access than, than all the princes of the kingdom. Well, you are the beloved child of the Father, and you can come into the throne room of the King at any time you are in need. If you continue to be afraid of Him, it's almost as if you don't believe the Gospel. You don't believe that He loved you and gave His Son for you so that you might become an heir of eternal life and a child. Now, in order for that to happen, we had to be redeemed. Which brings us to the subject of lordship. How do we become children of God? Well, we become children of God because Jesus redeemed us. He has purchased us by becoming our Lord. Now, in that regard, I want to draw your attention to Exodus chapter 6. It's uh, an interesting passage because it says something that uh, people look at and when they uh, compare Scripture with Scripture, they begin to, to scratch their heads a little bit. Because it says, uh, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I was not known to them. By my name, the Lord, I was not known to them. Now, that word Lord is written in our English Bible in all caps, which means it's a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, sometimes uh, translated in some Bibles, Jehovah. Uh, Jehovah, Yahweh, Lord in all caps, is God's covenant name. Now God says that I appeared to them as God Almighty, as El Shaddai, but not by my name Lord, not by the name Yahweh. But if you go back and read Genesis, uh, the name Lord is used by God when he comes to Abraham. God calls himself Yahweh in Abraham's presence. Not only that, you find it already in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, God's covenant name is used. Uh, The Lord God, Yahweh uh, Elohim, is uh, used there. So uh, the word was certainly known. So how is it that God says, they only knew me as El Shaddai, they didn't know me as Lord? Well, what God is getting at here is that he's about to really tell his people, show his people what lordship is all about. Certainly Abraham knew the name. Even Adam knew the name. But uh, they hadn't experienced what that that name was all about. They maybe had the, the beginning of an idea of what it was all about. But now God is going to demonstrate what lordship is all about. 
And in that regard, I, I draw your attention to, to verses uh, 6 through 8 uh, in uh, Hebrews, in uh, Exodus uh, 6. Verses 6 through 8 uh, begins and ends with uh, bookend statements of, I am the Lord. Verse 6 uh, says, therefore say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And then verse 8 ends with, I am the Lord. And in between those two bookend statements of, I am the Lord, you have seven statements where God says, I will. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. Seven times he says, I will. And when he says what he's going to do, he's saying, this is what lordship is all about. Okay, I set forth my name, the Lord. What's that all about? Well, number one, I will bring you out from under your burdens of the Egyptians. Two, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Four, I will take you to be my people. Five, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Six, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And seven, I will give it to you as a possession. First, I'm going to take away your burdens. Then I'm going to take even take it better than that. I'm going to take you out of the condition of slavery. And I'm going to bring you out there with mighty acts of judgment. You know, the mighty acts of judgment were the ten plagues upon the Egyptians, where God uh, judged the Egyptians, and uh, the plagues also reflected on the gods, the things that they worshipped. They worshipped uh, the Nile River, for example, and uh, uh, they worshipped the sun, and uh, God uh, took these things away from them and uh, to show that uh, he was a more powerful God than their gods. Uh, by, by mighty acts of judgment, I will bring you out, and then I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. That's the, the Emmanuel principle. We're going to be together. I will, you will be my people, and I will be your God means I'm going to bring you to myself. And not only will I bring you to myself so that we're together, but then we're going to go together to a place that I promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to bring you to that place. And I'm going to give you that place. It's going to become your place. And I'm going to be there with you. This is what, what lordship is all about. This is what it means to be redeemed by God, is to, to have our burdens removed. Now, this, this lesson in lordship is a lesson for us. You know, we have burdens also. We are burdened with the guilt of our sin. And when our God redeems us, when Christ redeems us, he takes away the guilt of our sin. But he not only takes away the guilt of our sin, he takes away the sinful condition. Not right away, but in a process of sanctification, culminating in glorification, he, he completely delivers us from slavery as well. First getting rid of the, by, uh, the guilt by justification, and then getting rid of the slavery by sanctification and glorification, so that uh, we are no longer under the power of sin at all. And uh, how does he do that? He does that by a mighty act of judgment. What judgment? The judgment he poured out on his son Jesus Christ. The judgment against our sin. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
And then God struck him for our iniquities, and by his stripes we are healed by mighty act of judgment. And after Christ has borne the guilt of our sin and uh, redeemed us, then God takes us to be his people. We become his people, he becomes our God. And that's, that's signified and sealed unto us in the sacrament of baptism. God puts his, his name on us. And we become bearers of his name. You know, I'm, let me just speak to on a side, parenthetically, a second here. I mentioned this morning about how the, uh, the Jews thought they could keep the third commandment, don't take my name in vain, by never pronouncing the name. And uh, there are people today in the church who think, well, I can keep the third commandment if I, if I never swear, if I never use God's name as an explicative. When I hit my thumb with a hammer, I never say uh, Christ's name. Or I, if I get all excited or something, I never say uh, uh, God's name over and over again the way so many people do. And if I, if I can avoid that, I can, I can keep the third commandment. But no, keeping the third commandment, not taking God's name in vain, means... You have to live a life that's worthy of the gospel because God put his name on you. You are a living representative of his name. When he redeemed you, he not only took away your burden of guilt and not only is delivering you from the power and presence of sin, but uh, he takes you to himself and makes you his people, puts his name on you and then, uh, and so that you bear his name. And then uh, he says, uh, I'll uh, bring you into the land and I'll make it yours forever. Uh, I kind of like to think of the two stages of bringing us into the land and making it ours forever as uh, uh, the already and the not yet of, of the kingdom. We're already in the kingdom. Uh, we have the down payment of the kingdom, but uh, we don't have the fullness of the kingdom. We don't possess it in its entirety yet. And so just what, what Jesus is saying, his lordship means for ancient Israel, bringing them out of Egypt, is what Christ has done for us as well. He's our Lord because he took away our guilt, because he is delivering us from the power and presence of sin. He's our Lord because he has taken us to himself and is with us. He's our Lord because he has given us uh, the kingdom which uh, we will enjoy in even greater fullness when he comes again. Uh, the cost of this was the blood of Jesus Christ, a very costly price indeed. He redeemed you from the tyranny of the devil. He redeemed you from the empty way of life uh, of the world uh, to give you new life as a member of God's family, a life set free from moral filth and corruption and all the misery it brings both now and in eternity. Whoever hears Christ's word and believes in him is assured that you are a child of God because Christ has redeemed you. You have passed from death to life. Even though your body may soon be uh, confined to a tomb, the day is coming when Christ will Sound the trumpet and give the call and the dead shall rise and we shall live forever in a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells forever. Now because he has redeemed you for himself and set you free from the bondage of sin and, and brought you into the glorious liberty of the children of God, it is incumbent upon you that you, you live as children of God. 
He hasn't given you the spirit of uh, bondage, but a spirit of sonship, a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but adoption of sons so that you cry, Ah, Father, Abba, Father, dear Father. We're to rejoice in our sonship and live as sons, not live in fear, not live in slavery to sin. In Paul's letter to the Romans, when he begins to explain this in the 12th chapter, he says, uh, uh, offer, in view of God's mercy, in view of your redemption, uh, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your acceptable service, uh, a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Don't be conformed to this world anymore, but rather uh, be uh, transformed by the renewal of your minds. He tells us not to avenge ourselves, but leave vengeance to God. Instead, we're to love our enemies and uh, conquer evil with good. Uh, a transformed life. Because we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we now have a whole new life opened up to us of living in the presence of God, before the face of God, honoring Him in everything that we do so that uh, He may be praised through our lives. Thanks be to God that we are children of God by the redeeming work of Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have indeed given us a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Dear Father, we thank you that we are no longer in slavery to sin, but that uh, we can enter into the glorious liberty of the children of God and no longer being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewal of our minds. Oh, Father, help us to live lives worthy of the gospel, that we not profane the name that you have placed on us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us respond to God's word by singing together selection number 448, Union with Thee. Uh, it's a new song, but I think a familiar uh, melody. We'll uh, stand if you're able and sing the five stanzas of number 448.